Hello and welcome. My name is Tim Mansfield. I'm Kobe's <laughs> Director of Alumni Affairs, and thanks for joining us this afternoon. Let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing today. Uh, as part of the Living Writers Series uh, through the English Department, we're privileged to have with us Peter Balakian, Professor of English, join us today for a more intimate discussion with some students and faculty on his book and teaching at Colgate. Um, today we're going to spend some time talking with Peter about his book and have a good question and answer with, with students and faculty here that we hope you'll appreciate. Uh, what we've been able to do over the last several months is offer classes like these and discussions like these that give you a close personal <coughs> access to some really outstanding authors and professors at Colgate. We appreciate your time today and hope you enjoy opportunities like these. Please write in if there's other professors and other topics you'd be interested in hearing about. And we look forward to seeing you again back here on campus. So for now, what I'll do is I'll turn the floor over to Professor Jennifer Bryce, who will introduce today's author. Professor Bryce. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure and an honor to say a few words about Peter Balakian, poet, memoirist, historian, translator, critic, public intellectual, who is also, to those of us in this room today, teacher, mentor, colleague, friend. Peter's newest book, Ziggurat, came out last month from the University of Chicago Press. It achieves, writes Carolyn Forche, a brilliant assimilation of the historical, philosophical, political, and psychological. To her list, I might add art, architecture, poetry of the past, pop culture, science, the natural world, personal experience, and the national tragedy of 9-11. Before Ziggurat were five books of poetry, most recently an edition of new and selected poems titled June Tree, a poem from June Tree, is in uh, today's issue of the Poetry, Poetry Foundation, and on the Huffington Press. The title of it, Post Traumatic Shock, Newark, New Jersey, 1942. It actually appeared yesterday, November 11th, for, for Veterans Day. Peter's nonfiction includes the best selling memoir, Black Dog of Fate, and a best selling work of history. Burning Tigress, about America's response to the Armenian Genocide. Last year, Knopf published Armenian Golgotha, Peter's translation of his uncle Grigoris Balakian's memoirs. Born and raised in New Jersey, Peter was educated at Bucknell, New York University, and Brown. He's taught at Colgate since 1980 and is the Donald M. and Constance H. Rebar Professor of the Humanities. He directs the Creative Writing Program and was the first director of the Center for Ethics and World Societies. Among Peter's many awards and honors are the Penn Albrand Prize and the Raphael Lemkin Prize, Guggenheim and National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships, and the Coronazzi Medal, Armenia's highest cultural award given to Peter for his tireless efforts to break the silence that for so many decades surrounded the genocide of the Armenians by the Turks. You probably already know my colleague Jane Pynchon, an E.M. Forrester and Virginia Woolf scholar who co-teaches the Living Writers course with me here at Colgate. We're also joined today by Jackie Joaquin, a senior major in English and creative writing and a minor in political science. Mm -hmm and Lyle Tully, who graduated from Colgate with an English degree 
in the spring of this year and who's now getting his MAT. Thanks for, thanks for being here. I'll lead off. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're great to have <laughs> I'll lead off with the first question. When you, Peter, spoke to our class, Living Writers, and then uh, did a public reading, you linked two works, Black Dog of Fate, which is what we read in Living Writers English 360, and Ziggurat the New Book of Poems. You linked them in many, many ways, the events of, uh, of uh, the Armenian Genocide in 1915 and the events of 9-11. 2001. And one of the ways you did that was through the figure of the mail runner. Uh, could you speak a little to that sense of, of the continuity between those events and also the, the, the mail runner? Yeah, the mail runner. And M-A-I-L, of course. <laughs> Not, yeah. Well, a wonderful event happened in my life when I was 15. I was sprung from um, affluent, sunny suburbia, Tenafly, New Jersey, through a summer job um, that was um, located, my summer employment, my employer was a stevedoring company at the tip of Manhattan at 17 Battery Place, right on Battery Park. And my job, um, my main job was to run mail um, for my company. Uh, around Lower Manhattan, mm -hmm. and one of the <coughs> one of the um, kind of goals of this job was to pick up checks uh, that the other steamship companies owned. My stevedoring company, so I still call it my stevedoring company, <laughs> even though it's been out of business for a long time. I feel dedication to that wonderful place um, to get checks, which were sizable. Um, even then, in the in the <coughs> this is the mid to late '60s. Um, checks for several hundred thousand dollars to get those checks into the bank uh, before three o'clock on that day, um, you know, s um, earned your company a good bit of money and interest. So I got to know Lower Manhattan really well. Um, I, I, I ran the back alleys and streets of uh, Broadway and Greenwich and Broad Street and um, Maiden Lane and Ann Street and. Um, Wall Street and so forth, and, and I, I came to inhabit um, odd uh, elevators of the old-fashioned sort with the accordion doors and the, and the elevator operators always, you know, always they seem to have a cigar in their mouth, and so those <laughs> elevators are forever associated in my mind with, with what the wonderful uh, cigar, you know, richness of cigar smoke. And so I, I um, you know, I, uh, got, I, it was my baptism into the ki a kind of real world of, of sorts and um, uh, gritty urban culture. Um, and um, of course, one of the benefits of this was to be able to watch the World Trade Towers um, be built. And I, I was there um, working those streets from the very time of the breaking of the ground of the towers until um, the completion of the towers, and in fact, it delivered mail to the North Tower very shortly after it opened, when just the first 49 floors were, were in operation. Mm -hmm. And so the sense of the excitement of that um, was sort of all around one, and I, I'm not sure that I was all that 
you know, self-aware about what was happening. It was happening. It was just part of the landscape. But when the towers were destroyed um, on 9-11 of 2001, the uh, memory of those streets and those mm -hmm. towers really came back to me with incredible kind of emotional feeling and vividness. Mm -hmm. um, and they, I would say, sort of um, haunted me, haunted my imagination. Mm -hmm. And the, the beauty of the towers also struck me in, in ways that I think, <clears throat> you know, you take for granted a lot of the landscape mm -hmm. you, you travel through, and mm -hmm. especially when you're, I think, younger. The, um, but the, the, I, I think uh, Yamasaki's kind of late modernist minimal austerity was really beautifully realized in those forms. And those forms embody many complicated things. Um, they embody, um, you know, late uh, post-industrial capitalism, international capitalism. They embody architectural um, achievements. Um, they embody a certain piece of Manhattan that was unique. I mean, 250 to 270,000 people worked in the towers every day. Um, and um, for me, then, as a writer thinking, you know, kind of re-inhabiting the towers that um, <clears throat> enabled me to, I suppose, explore the towers as spaces of imagination and mind, um, places of, of thought and um, perhaps artistic uh, exploration. And that, uh, of course, created an interesting brew and even a fusion for me as I <clears throat> began to write um, a group of poems um, that are in my new book. But as you noted, too, you know, the landscape of the Mail Runner also was a formative place for um, my own memoir story um, in a very different way. Um, so place can become interesting incarnations of different dimensions as you inhabit the place at a different time in a different genre. And there's much to be said about that. And I'm just sort of scratching the surface here, but... I'd love you to read World Trade Center Mail Runner 71, if you might. Sure. Um, only to say here, to add to what I've noted, just that <clears throat> the pop song that I use here is from <clears throat> Junior Walker and the All-Stars, who are a kind of... Um, rock bluesy group of, of the mid to late 60s and the song What Does It Take to Win Your Love For Me was uh, We played it, you know. Did Jane tell you we I played it? It's, it's so great. great. You yeah. know, that it song has great. a kind of... People walked into the classroom well, hearing it. I'm so glad to hear that. It has a great energy to it. Still, I, was, and I haven't yeah, heard it in a long time, but yeah. it has a beautiful energy to it. <coughs> and so I will... Um, I assume the lyrics will be evident how I try to read them. So World Trade Center, Mail Runner, 71. Every city's a response to the indifference of geology. From the pier on West Street, the towers were sun on steel. I felt the tone hole sockets vibrate in my hand. I felt, what does it take to win your love for me? woozy like bourbon, insistent as the crowds pushing around me to the lunch carts and heavenly benches. By the time I pressed the buttons 
Junior Walker's sax was swallowing the elevator. I rose up a vertigo of keys into the plain lingo of anodized aluminum and blue skyed-out window panes. If the merging of writing and bureaucracy started urban life, if a city could levitate on arbitrage and junk bonds, if the sea above were like the Hudson down here, if I tried, I tried, I tried in every way I could. The vents were cooling me down. I had a check for a half million in my pocket, a lot for those days. At the sky lobby on the 47th, I looked out at the barges and tugs on the filthy gold water, the Colgate clock on the Jersey side ticking in the late capitalist haze. Looked out into the mica flakes of air, the gulls flat as floating money, the sun spilling on a geology of invisible numbers. I was tempted to try to sing those lines, but I thought, <laughs> I thought better of it. Would have been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, since we're talking about Ziggurat, actually, I was really curious as to the title. Can you speak a little to how you chose it, what it means? Right. It's yeah. many different meanings, possibly. Yeah, you know, when, um, Jackie, when the book um, first got into the, um, you know, the kind of, production process and pe people, you know, were asking me its name and Ziggurat was my answer and I got a lot of really blank faces like, I don't know what it means. <laughs> and I thought, I really, shall we say, screwed myself here <laughs> because I've created a title um, uh, that seems to be not very, um, shall we say, popular <laughs> or, or, or little bit enigmatic but anyway look I, I think probably a lot a, a lot a lot of the audience out there does know that the ziggurat at Ur um, was uh, sort of the first great skyscraper if you will of what we have traditionally called Western culture civilization the word ziggurat in Aramaic means great building big building tall building I you know skyscraper right in, sure, in, in modern vernacular um, and it was, a, it was built by the Sumerians, um, you know, close to 5,000 years ago, mm -hmm. and um, was excavated by the uh, important British archaeologist Sir Leonard Woolley in the late 20s and early 30s. When I came upon Woolley's memoir called um, Ur of the Chaldees, you mm -hmm. know, it's about his voyage and his architectural exploration of, of the Ziggurat at Ur. It's a very good book, and it's beautifully written. Check it out. Uh, he's really, you know, he's one of these Renaissance figures who write, you know, British, British um, archaeologists of early part of the 20th century who could write beautifully. And, um, and so I got interested in the ruin of a great building of another era, and the more I read about it, the more it began ringing bells for me about the towers, the absence of the towers. And, and the two started speaking across millennia to me. And it provided a kind of avenue of digging, of exploration, you know. And so the word ziggurat, which I think is a beautiful, edgy, alive, 
word. Uh, also, just I have to tell you, it's one of the f few moments in my life where the title was just there from the beginning, and I just there was I was it. I felt mm -hmm. I. I got it. I got it, and <laughs> whatever the book turns out to be, it's going to have that title. <laughs> so I felt, you know, I felt the, the power of the word and its meaning and its place in history and its, its topos for uh, our own um, living amidst ruins. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we like to pretend we don't live amidst ruins, you know, because we, I think that, you know, there's a tendency in a, in a, a hyper-modern culture to always feel you're in control and everything is clean and ordered and sanitized. And of course it's not. And um, so I found the idea of the ziggurat in ruins very um, appropriate for my, for my uh, journey into that book. And I think it is. It's, it's a great title. Thanks. So, uh, I don't know, it's, I, thought it was, I thought it was great because you got excited about you know, the word ziggurat. You said it was alive for you. Um, and so that that's one of the one of the things I, I guess I realized about Black Dog of Fate is that a lot of it was kind of about language and you kind of discovering, um, you know, the uses for it and how you could use that to kind of like you said dig into your past. And so, um, I don't. Can you talk a little bit about um, just I guess your 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 uh, exploration of language? You're you're kind of trying to discover how you would use poetry to. Um, to kind of look into your past and, and kind of your development uh, through the through the book. Um. Yeah, that's a very uh, a, you know, huge question and one that certainly uh, an hours of conversation <laughs> to have about. But you know, in some sense, I, I'm, I'm I'm no different than any writer for whom um, the the zones you're pulled toward are. Um, uh, you're led to by language because it's the medium you work in. You know, if you were a painter, you'd be led to it by the weird materials of your paint, or a sculptor would be led by their materials. So, so language be, you know, once language makes its grip on you, kind of, and the grip seems irreversible, and you're in its grip, and that's where you're going to work and how you're going to work. What becomes interesting, every writer's different in this way, of course, is how how the medium pulls you, you know, what your particular approach to the medium is, how you, um, I mean, writers work in different ways. I, have, I will say for me, you know, sound, sounds and rhythms matter a lot, you know, and it's not, po poets, have an inclination towards sound and rhythm, but many many writers work with sound and rhythm in very in every genre. But sound sound and rhythm, the echo chamber of the head and the way it takes in a particular word can be absolutely surprising to you. All of a sudden, it can pop something in your own writing process. Um, I was playing around with this a little bit in the new chapters in Black Dog of Fate. Another Z word, uh, Zor, in the in the in the Syrian desert mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. called Der Zor, um, which was place of a monastery. And again, it, it's sort of an Aramaic word. Maybe I'm being called to Aramaic <laughs> words, and I have to heed this call and do something with it. They're very rich, aren't they? I think uh, 
the people that wrote both of the, uh, I think, you know, both um, um, testaments of our sacred book, the Bible, uh, you know, were hanging around Aramaic a lot. So it's an ancient sound. sound you know, ancient sounds come back to one. But, um, you know, ha playing around with the words der Zor got me entangled in a way of thinking about that place. Uh, that helped give that particular chapter a different inflection. So, you know, I like to follow out sounds and etymologies. I like to hear words in my own, e in my own echo chamber and see how <clears throat> they get translated. Because people, any writer might translate a couple sounds slightly differently, you know. Mm -hmm. and, but the nuances of the differences make a big deal in your, you know, in what you end up doing and how the, the kind of cadences you establish in your writing. I also find, I suppose, in both in this, you know, in the memoir and in my various poems, sometimes <clears throat> the interesting energy of um, song lyrics can be igniting. They are a form of poetic language, the best ones, you know. <laughs> and sometimes even weird ones that aren't, that you can kind of bite a phrase out of a newspaper article or a song lyric or um, a memorable speech, and it takes you somewhere. So the idea is letting sound and rhythm take you places that are intellectually uh, down the road. Okay, so I, you know that's one way to think about a piece of of how language could open things up for me. And as a kid, you know, I write about this a bit in in the Black Dog story. And poetry came really alive for me at a certain point in my high school life. Yeah. You know, and um, and it it was a real new life that I was carrying alongside another life where football and basketball and baseball seemed to really preoccupy the outer life, but language was starting to occupy the inner life. And it's not that I was running from the language, but I didn't quite know what to do with it yeah. fully mm -hmm. until I got to the next phase in education where I was able to quit football. That was a big step. You could get rid of, you know, the enormity of the hold that um, one domain of life has on you. It opens up a lot of space for you. And so I don't want to make a simple equation here. You, you can do other things and become an artist or whatever. But for me, for me, this uh, transition toward language out of the sports world was simply a piece of my own, you know, journey. Can you talk about genre a little bit? You write poetry. You write nonfiction. You actually write in many nonfiction forms: essay, criticism, memoir, history, of course. Do you do you inhabit both of those forms with equal ease and move between them? I know now you're working on on essays, having just published a collection of poetry. And do <coughs> are you more comfortable in one or the other? And is there is there any way that the two of them speak to each other? That writing nonfiction helps the poetry and the other way around? Um, Jennifer, great, yeah, it's great stuff to think about. Um, I, I want to take the last thing you say okay. first, because um, they do, for me, speak to each other. 
do that? Um, I would say that, um, you know, the, the um, hard-earned efforts at storytelling Storytelling didn't come naturally to me. I really, uh -huh. you know, think I think in images. I think mm -hmm. in phrases. The lyric sensibility. I just block <laughs> things and I write down and in. Yeah. And you know, I remember at the beginning of working with the editor who bought Black Dog of Fate, Gail Winston, um, and, and saying to me, "Okay, now you we've got to move in a linear. <laughs> we've got to move in a linear way. So this has to be flattened and it has to it has to move differently." So I, I said, okay, I hear you, you know, I'll work. I know. So I, 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 that was something to learn. Yeah. Um, I think it, it, has, it was very, um, you know, it was, it was important in also helping to move my poems in a more, na um, I use narrative here cautiously, but, but in a more perhaps s spoken voice. It, it, mm -hmm. it, it inflected more speaking, speaking tones into the poems. That had come out of prose, um, and I think that was, uh, for me, a fine mix of, mm -hmm. of, of uh, you know, what would I want to say, literary energy that came out of one form into another. And then, you know, going backward, I mean, going in the other direction, uh, I, you know, I, I write prose out of image bases, mm -hmm. out of image clusters and phrase rhythms, mm -hmm. so that that, for me, is a natural way of writing. If, mm -hmm. then if, I'm gonna, if it's going to be a piece of writing that's going to move more narratively, you know, I, I figure out how to crack the wires and, mm -hmm. you know, break the stones up more so they, uh -huh. they move faster. But the two really do uh, have a, uh, some synergy. They do. Um, that's great. Um, and not not, not, you know, always challenging to mm -hmm. find the recipe. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know. Into that recipe, and, and, and you, mm -hmm. of course, are a writer for whom food matters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the, the sense of, of a cook-off, and you know, the sense of what you do with lamb in prose yeah, or, in, or, or in poetry <laughs> is, is, is real. But to take that to another source of your writing, and that is what we haven't talked about so far on Ar Armenia. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the audience that uh, will be listening to us now know you through much of that work and know you through 60 Minutes, through Charlie Rose, through the public places. You've talked about the Armenian genocide. Could you speak a little to, and I, I say that <laughs> looking at Jackie across the Way, who is also Armenian, uh, could you speak a little to the Armenian part of you as writer? That is uh, really how Armenia <laughs> generated also the self that is the writer, Peter Blakian. Yeah, uh, much to say <laughs> there, Jane. Absolutely. I mean, um, it, it's a curious recipe, as you picked up on um, you know, the right concept. Here it is a recipe. <laughs> we're all we are all a recipe, aren't we? You know, of strange ingredients. The Armenian, you know, the Armenian reality for me is in part bound up in memory and history, so that. <clears throat> Clearly, my own engagement with 
history has come through some degree of personal memory and familial memory, which is, I suppose, best defined by my hunt to find out about what happened to my grandmother's generation, my grandparents' mm -hmm. generation, as survivors of the Armenian Genocide. And they, uh, they were survivors in different forms. My grandmother um, really having walked through the fire of a, of a brutal death march uh, in August and September of 1915, and having had her entire family, more than 50 people, murdered uh, more or less in the first two weeks of August of 1915, and she's the, she, she was the only surviving member except for a half-cousin who happened to be in New Jersey, yeah. Thomas Shekhar-Lamedjan, which was her full Armenian name, which got Americanized as Shekharjan in New Jersey by the 1940s and stood prominently on real estate signs as Shekharjan <laughs> Realty all over Bergen County, just to be a testimony to the fact that Armenian entrepreneurial skills travel uh, <laughs> far. Um, she herself was not in the business. It was her half-cousin's offspring's were. But okay, so my, you know, my grandparents and my, my, my father's parents were survivors of a different sort lived in the big capital of the empire, Constantinople, where my father was born in 1920, and where his sisters were born actually during the war and during the period of the genocide. Um, they, their flight was a little different. It happened after the war. But so both of these enigmatic histories hover over my you know, otherwise suburban, sunny, affluent childhood, and they're not spoken about openly, and, uh, you know, they come, they appear in weird forms, I've called them hieroglyphic forms, or encoded messages, and that's a lot of what I try to track down in Black Dog of Fate. But my interest in those encoded messages, and in those hieroglyphic hieroglyphics, you know, kind of prompted me as a writer to become immersed in a certain kind of memory and a certain kind of historical hunt. So that, that's certainly a big part of the Armenian dimension of my, of my, I guess, my sensibility. Once you get in, once you start digging in those veins, then you come up with all kinds of stuff, and you're stuck with it. You know, I mean, muck, blood, <laughs> you know, burned clothing, yeah. um, but also ch church belfries and gorgeous yeah. artifacts and language. illuminated manuscript. Mm -hmm. I, as far as the language goes, you know, it's certainly one of the great regrets of my life to this point that I, d I don't speak the language fluently. Yeah. You know, I, I have a little bit of language here and there. Kichma is the word in Armenian. A little people ask me, do you speak Kichma? What can I say? You know? <laughs> Uh, but some phrases and words and uh, sounds, uh, you know, I grew up with, sure. But uh, I wish it were more language. Yeah. But anyway, so then the culture starts to come into you a bit. But for me, the culture always came, you know, hard to talk about adequately, I suppose, but certainly is always coming through an, Amer an Anglo-American literary lens. It's the, mm -hmm. it's the tra these are the traditions I'm trained in. and. 
immersed in. I, I don't write in Armenian, I don't read it. Mm -hmm. So it becomes that hybridized diasporic identity, which is familiar to a lot of American writers. Certainly the theme of the great course you've put on this semester, I think largely you have so many diasporic figures yeah, in this. In fact, we could really have a whole kind of, you could have a round table to, on diaspora at the end. Could. We could all get around and talk about we it. Could. So um, the cuisine always does figure in there because it's such <laughs> a rich part of that um, sensibility of the Armenian culture and uh, a powerful one connecting lands and times, you know, and remaining a constant in a certain cultural continuity. Um, and, uh, but still, there's always a good macaroni and cheese <laughs> lodged next to a great uh, media stuffed mussels or a dalma, you know. So. <laughs> we should note that you, you have a, a, I think it's a prose poem, this extended really piece of lyric prose writing about food, the food of your childhood in this month's Savor magazine. Okay. It's really <laughs> not not to be read on an empty stomach. That's for well, sure. That's kind of you it's to say. Really I hope it, I'm, it's you a know, wonderful if, piece. Even if some recipes get transmitted through it, I'll <laughs> it be happy. Uh, it belongs in the pantheon. Yeah, yeah, Great so, food well, writing. You should check out my uh, my yeah. grandma's actual Armenian cookbook. She she really? actually wrote yeah. one okay. just she for did. our family. That's really great. Yeah. Yeah. That's did a you hide the recipes? Um, <coughs> should egg. <laughs> it was it was difficult. <laughs> my sister, yeah. my sister tried it, and I helped her a little bit. She had a hard time with it, but it turned out pretty good. It does kind of humble you to realize the enormous you know, energy and art that goes into making those dishes yes, that definitely. women invested so much. The in. grape leaves and the oh yeah. my gosh, yeah, it's, a <laughs> it's it's a gorgeous mm -hmm. gorgeous art. Um, so good to hear. I hope to read the recipes. Good. <laughs> I'll, I'll dig it up for you. <laughs> But I think, I think Jane, you know, I just probably just a summer or just to cap it off to say that it's the blend and the, and the dual cultures that for me have been energizing, you know, the right. coming together of them and the, the, way they can, the way they can, when they hit right, mingle and make some interesting, exciting sparks and openings and so forth happen. You know. Jackie, you spoke a little bit to the fact that Black Dog of Fate um, generated excitement within your family and oh, in yeah. some ways yeah. generated a, a, an awareness of uh, a discussion about mm -hmm. uh, your roots too. Would you, would you just say something? Sure. I mean, I, it's, it's interesting because reading your book was like completely eye-opening for me um, in the sense that I recognized all the patterns of the Armenian family and the secret and um, you know, just y your grandmother wanting you by her side and, you know, the little things like that that come through um, an Armenian family who chooses not to speak about the genocide. Um, and that's definitely what was going on in my family when I was growing mm -hmm. up, when my father was growing up. Mm -hmm. um, and your story actually reflects a lot of my father's story, right. um, which is um, your experiences growing up and also, you know, he came to the actual history a lot later in his life than I did. You know, mm -hmm. I've had the benefit of your book behind me. You know, I grew up with your book. Mm -hmm. And my whole family, um, my brothers and sisters also grew up with your book, mm -hmm. um, which has been a huge mm -hmm. asset to my education. Mm -hmm. um, 
But, it, yeah, it's interesting now that we have your book to talk about. There's a conversation for the first time. My dad and I are speaking. I'm going to call my, I'm, I'm planning on calling my grandmother, having a nice long conversation <laughs> with her in a few days. I think that's I'm sure important. she'll love it. I think, I think the conversations across generations matter a great deal. And um, I always encourage people to interview, to do interviews, to do kinds of professions, mm -hmm. professional as you can make them, interviews with the um, um, older generations, because mm -hmm. they have rich stories to tell, not only in our culture, uh, period. I mean, I think it's a fascinating way of understanding history and mm -hmm. the complexity of the world mm -hmm. is, by, is by really, you know, not just having loose conversations, but really saying, could you sit down and could we talk about yeah. what mm -hmm. it was like to grow up in mm -hmm. East Orange, New Jersey in the 1930s? <laughs> Avon, Avon, Connecticut, for my dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. So. That's that's great, and I, you know there there are a lot of interesting books of the last fifteen twenty years to deal with the Armenian past. So there's been a real flowering of history, art history, yeah. memoir, fiction. What started that? I mean, how how come just recently? I don't. I think things. It's not really. I mean, I think it's not quite that automatic or instant. But I think things evolve and evolve, and then certain conditions create a. Uh, a cultural threshold, mm -hmm. if you will, you know, mm -hmm. I think that mm -hmm. a certain generation comes to a certain place where there are more of them, mm -hmm. there are more people writing, mm -hmm. there is a transformed, I would say, ethical and human rights landscape. Definitely. So that you're trying to write about what happened to the Armenians or the Greeks or the Jews uh, in 19... 40 or 50, it's a lot harder. Mm -hmm. There's a lot less context. There's a lot mm -hmm. less intellectual soil. You start trying to do that in the 1970s and 80s, you have a different intellectual mm -hmm. and political context. So, mm -hmm. you know, all these things have their interlocking, intersecting mm -hmm. um, reasons. So, um, and things are very uh, connected. Uh, the impact of Holocaust studies has been large on the broader writing about human rights, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so you have stories coming from Cambodia and Rwanda, from the Balkans, all over the planet, stories that are, create a very rich tone in contemporary literature. Right. And you guys in your course have seen a lot of richness of those tones. Right. I mean, from Julia Alvarez to Jhumpa Lahiri, to V.S. Naipaul and, uh, and Francis Wang. I mean, you've seen so many. Yeah. I mean, it really, you know, yeah. be great. If you have a wrap-up, invite me in. I'd like to, to, to hear the reflection <laughs> on the globe the that your course has presented. I mean, it's pretty cool, unusual, singular. Yeah. It's easy for us professors to dominate. Do you want to jump um, into the conversation more? Sure. Uh, I guess <coughs> uh, just when Jackie was talking, I was thinking about like, because you really had a definitely, you know, personal connection, mm -hmm. and, and so I sort of a bit of a personal connection because my my little sister goes to uh, to Bucknell, okay. um, and so when I saw that you went there, I was like, oh, cool. Um, <laughs> and it seems like your college years were really um, like important for you. You kind of found your love. Certainly, it was you know um, in high school a little bit, but then in college you seemed like you were really active and um, maybe it was a product of the culture at the time in the U.S. Uh, 
the late 60s, early 70s, um, right. when uh, Bag of Buck now. Um, right. But I was wondering, at, at Colgate now, um, how is it different? I mean, um, you really found yourself. I'm wondering, is that happening at, at Colgate now? Um, or uh, I just wanted, to, if you could talk about like the, yeah. the differences or how you see right. Colgate. Um, well, again, you know, it's interesting that uh, to continue to reflect upon how each of us, you know, are, are inseparable from historical contexts and yeah. they shape a lot of who we are, not everything, but a lot of who we are and how we've evolved. Um, you're certainly right in saying that the um, period that uh, I was in school during uh, was a very dynamic moment. It was, it was a little chaotic. It was unprecedented. It, its excitement was hard to even at the time, you were aware of the excitement, you know. I know Jane has more to reflect on than I do, because she passed through more phases of it, but you were overwhelmed with what, by the week or the day, what you didn't know what you were waking up to, you know. <laughs> All of a sudden, in your, the end of your freshman year, um, school is canceled. I mean, a lot of classes were just canceled. Uh, the strike against Nix's invasion of Cambodia had become a nationwide phenomenon. Um, and um, it, was, it was a complicated time, too, because you could also be swept under, you could be vacuumed into something and never come out, you know. It challenged you, challenged you in many ways. Uh, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to be romantic about it, because it was complex. And there were a lot of casualties from this period as well. Uh, we all have friends who sort of, you know, were burned by. But, but it was exciting, and it was a sense that the, 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 the intrusion of politics and history into the daily life was clearly defining, and um, it made education pop and heat up in ways that I would think many people of my generation would say had a big impact on them and might have had an impact on their wanting to go on and, and into education. Um, so, um, I, and I have many things to say, and Bucknell was a particularly interesting countercultural place for some odd reasons that had to do with the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary and some very important political prisoners like Daniel Berrigan and Sister Elizabeth McAllister who were there and who were on prison furloughs in classes that I was taking and who were working with the new left historians who were kind of training me, like uh, my old friend Dick Drennan, who wrote an important book on Emma Goldman. So that stuff was like, I didn't know I was signing up for this. You know, I'm coming out to the, to, to the um, beautiful pastures of central Pennsylvania thinking I'm going to be playing football. <laughs> and things change rather quickly. But your bigger question about uh, today and the college campus. I mean, in some sense, it, it's, it's not quite fair to make simple comparisons between 2010 and 1970 or something. Mm -hmm. So much has intervened, and, you know, politics happens in complicated ways for your generation. A lot of it happens on the Internet, I know. 
and and you are the most global generation that's ever existed, and that's incredibly exciting. Um, I think about our age of, mm -hmm. it had its beauties too, but you know, you went to a pay phone booth once a week and made a call. Yeah. Otherwise, nobody knew what you were doing, where <laughs> yeah. you were. Yeah. No, no email, no <laughs> cell phone. I mean, it's, 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 it's <laughs> revolution away. Yeah. Um, I, you asked me, are, are people discovering themselves and finding themselves? Absolutely. I mean, every year we all have students whose lives are going to real places out of work that's happened to them here. And what you too. You know, I mean, that's, I, it's every bit as dynamic. The, the terms are different. And, uh, you know, there is a kind, there is a difference in uh, um, public aggregate formation among young people. And there's something exciting about civic ag aggregate, you know, c civic coming together and working. Um, I think it does happen, but it doesn't, you know, it's not quite as acute. And I wish there were more of it. Um, I wish there was just more presence in that way, but I do know that you know that there are a lot of challenges for, for your generation. <laughs> My Lord, huge challenges that you, you know so many great Colgate students are getting totally immersed in. This is going to be the last question, and I know that we have to keep it short because we're up against our time limit. But on Tuesday, you gave a, a wonderful talk, a wonderful and far-ranging talk, in which you you spoke about many things. But the thing, as you know, because I talked to you about it afterward, that really stayed with me was the way that you you juxtaposed the gorgeousness of modernity from the late 19th century through the 20th and early 21st with the with the horrors also the, the, of, of many historical events that have happened in this era. And I, I, I've been thinking since then about the implications of that juxtaposition in your own work. You've, you've taken on the horror of the Armenian Genocide, the horror of 9-11 in the new <coughs> book, Cigarette, and made gorgeous art mm. out of these events. How do you, how do you, th how do you think about that juxtaposition mm -hmm. in terms of your own work? Thank you. Um, you know, I wanted just, just to know one thing, Jennifer, as I think about, you know, having to talk about many things at 35 or 40 minutes on Tuesday. <laughs> the, the bringing together of the excitement of cultural achievement of modernism yes. with the, um, the malignancy of yes. some of that achievement yeah. um, morphing into self-devouring forms. Yeah. I wish I could have spent another hour talking about it because, because yeah. what, what, <laughs> what, 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 what I'm really interested <laughs> there is the inseparability of the two. Yes. The paradoxes yeah. that are inherent mm -hmm. in the yeah. nature of history, the animal we, we create and live yeah. in. And so I wish I you know, could have gone there more fully. But I think it's my way of answering you in the sense that I'm, you know, I'm interested in the paradoxes and ironies of the collisions and intersections of the, humans, the human self or mm -hmm. imagination and its talents to create extraordinary dimensions of our civilization mm -hmm. and have those very realities morph into horrific, destructive,
mass murdering dimensions or poisoning dimensions. And that we, we, we inherit this paradox, we're stuck in it. We can't separate, you know, very, we, it's not, we, can't, we can't extricate these two mm -hmm. forces. And so, you know, as artists, many of us get interested in inhabiting the um, kind of um, nexus ground mm -hmm. between these forces. And I think, you know, um, the, the uh, challenge, I suppose, for I've tried to explore some of those interstitial mm -hmm. places, and um, I, I, I don't want to beautify the horror, of course, mm -hmm. but I'm interested in these collisions because I think that you can have the dynamic excitement of the airplane and then you can have mass murdering with bombs mm -hmm. coming out of airplanes mm -hmm. and the two have to stay in an un hel uh, un unresolvable tension. Mm -hmm. So maybe uh, the unresolvable tension continues to interest me. Fabulous. I want to say thank you to our audience. It's a real pleasure for us at Colgate we're sitting in Melinda and Jeff Fager's contribution to the English Department, a wonderful room. Uh, what pleasure to be talking with students and Peter Balakian here and to have you, an audience of alumni and friends online. Thank you. And thanks to Peter Balakian. Thanks for Thank you. pulling Thank you. me in here to talk. It's been a joy.